RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio. Brian S. Hooker, PhD, is Senior Director of Science and Research at Children's Health Defence and Professor Emeritus of Biology at Simpson University in Redding, California. He's dedicated over 15 years as a bioengineer and the team leader for the High Throughput Biology Team and Operations Manager of DOE Genomics, the Genomes to Life Center for Molecular and Cellular Systems at the Pacific Northwest National Laboratory. Hooker also served as Research Director for the plant biotechnology company Phytogenics, In 1985, he earned his Bachelor of Science degree in Chemical Engineering from California State Polytechnic University, Pomona, California. He earned his Master of Science degree in 88 and his doctorate in 1990, both in Biochemical Engineering from Washington State University in Pullman, Washington. He's had many accomplishments to his credit, including co-inventor of five patents, recipient of the Battelle Entrepreneurial Award in 2001, and a Federal Laboratory Consortium Recognition Award in 99 for his work on reactive transport in three dimensions. The breadth of his over 60 science and engineering papers have been published in internationally recognized peer-reviewed journals. Dr. Hooker has been active in the autism community since 2001 and has a 19-year-old son with autism. In 2013 and 14, Hooker worked with CDC whistleblower Dr. William Thompson to expose fraud and corruption within vaccine safety research in the CDC, which led to the release of over 10,000 pages of documents. So, Dr. Hooker, welcome to our radio station, Reality Check Radio. Thank you for making some time for us. Uh, You're very welcome. Thank you for having me on your show, Paul. And I'm sad to hear about your son, I have to say. Well, thank you. You know, um, my son, what we're discovering about his autism is that it's much more motor uh, and motor coordination, motor control, fine motor, and that, you know, unlocking him and we're doing that through um, a, a communication method called Spellers. Uh, unlocking him, we're finding out just how brilliant he is. <laughs> and it's really been a big game changer for us. You, you know, we asked him the other day, what subject do you want to study the most? And, and of course, he said math. And so, you know, we pulled out a bunch of, uh, uh, you know, math uh, uh, problems for him to do. And we found out that he's quite the whiz kid. And, and so this, this whole spellers program has been a real game changer. So his trajectory is quite good. And although he's a non-speaker, he, he, you know, doesn't have the sort of oral motor coordination in order to speak. Um, he, he can communicate just fine. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking of, um, uh, friends that we have in our family, um, who live in the UK and they have a daughter yes. who's now 21. And I tell you, because I've, I've known about the situation for about the last, um, you know, 15, 20 years since, since she was small, it has been such a tough life. Yes. Oh my God. It, it, it really has. It right. You, you I think the average person can't imagine at the serious end of this, what life is like to have a, a child in that situation. It's, it's, it's so tough. It's very tough. Um, you know, my, my wife and I double shift and we're very fortunate that 
you know, our marriage has survived. A lot of people are not so lucky. And, you know, especially when you have the stress of uh, raising, raising a special child in, in the midst of everything else, then, uh, so we, we count ourselves very blessed. Uh, but we do, you know, my son sleeps maybe three or four hours a night. I mean, and that's pretty typical of autistic kids. And so she does the night shift. I do the morning shift and, um, and, you know, because my son does really require 24 seven care. Um, so it's, it's quite challenging, um, but you know, there are silver linings, there are blessings. Uh, we have a lot of good family friends that do help out and, you know, you don't find out the kindness of others unless, you know, you're put in certain situations where you need to rely upon them. And, and, you know, by and large, a lot of our friends have really, really come through for us. Okay. So here's the big picture question. Can we ask now with, you know, a serious inquiry intent, if there is a definite link between vaccination programs, I guess going back uh, the last three or, or maybe a little more, three decades, and the what um, anecdotally anyway seems like a huge blowout in in the number of autism, I don't know if you call it sufferers or, or, or people, kids affected by autism. Is there a link, Dr. Hooker? Well, in my experience, personally and professionally, I do see a link between uh, vaccines and autism. Um, you know, my own son' personal story he he regressed after his fifteen month vaccines, and it was quite profound and it was quite immediate what we saw after you know he sustained a vaccine injury. Um, and, you know, th literally three months after his, his 15 month vaccines, he was diagnosed with full blown autism. Um, and, you know, other, other events transpired within that time that showed us, th um, that he, his system was not able to handle the onslaught of having three vaccines, including one live virus vaccine. Uh, all while having an active ear infection, which is, of course, contraindicated, even though, you know, the nurse practitioner that day said, oh, it's fine. You know, we vaccinate sick kids all the time. He'll be absolutely fine. And he wasn't. But then, you know, in, in doing my research, my son's now 25 years old. And so I've been doing this for over 20 years. And I see the cover up and the collusion, especially on the part of the United States Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and their commitment to cover up the link between vaccines and autism at all costs. And in some of these publications that they've come out with, the real truth is hiding in plain sight. You know, there was a study between the timing of the MMR vaccine and autism, and the study dates back to 2004. And when you look at the real data, you look at the actual data tables, it showed that those children who got the MMR on time were at least, uh, um, let's see, 49% as likely or more likely to get an autism diagnosis. And then, then boys, it went to 67%. And of course, the CDC tried to explain it away in the publication, but it was a statistically significant link. And they've done that also with the Marisol, the mercury-containing preservative that used to be used in a lot of the childhood vaccines. You know, they've indemnified that, even though their own raw data show that there is a linkage between that. And so, you know, when I see publications that try to refute that linkage, I will automatically go to their statistical model and 
Um, I see so many fatal flaws and there's so much of a commitment on these, you know, agencies that I believe are captured by the pharmaceutical industry really to indemnify vaccines at all costs. And they make these ludicrous statements like, oh, well, we don't know what causes autism, but we're sure it's not the vaccines. Yeah, there seems to be um, I've heard that a bit lately where people have had trouble following a certain vaccine that uh, came in the last uh, year and a half or so right and uh, and in in inquiring into their medical problem let's say they are told um you know in a very confident way there's nothing to do with that but right. but they don't know what it is to do with I, I mean that is just such a glaring contradiction right there it really is. And there's there's such a preponderance of evidence. There's a lot of new publications that have been done independently of these agencies, especially around vaccines and autism, that show a definitive link. And, and so I'm relying on those publications rather than publications from captured agencies. And, and I do think you bring up a big point with the COVID-19 vaccine and, and a, a lot of time, a, a lot of people are now seeing through that because it seems like it's just the same tired old excuse. Yeah, and also there was, I don't know about where you're from, I'm picking it's the same. There was this uh, by authorities, institutions in charge, let's say, this um, um, willingness to clamp down at all costs on anything that might generate anything that sounded like or looked like vaccine hesitancy. It was like treading on a landmine to even go close to that. Why would that be, do you think? Well, vaccines are such big business. And you look over the pandemic and, and you know, in the United States, the two vaccines that were distributed most widely were the Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccine, both mRNA technology. Well, Pfizer made $54 billion, uh, you know, in the first year and a half of the pandemic on their vaccination program for COVID-19. Moderna made over $30 billion. And so, you know, there's huge, huge financial incentivization, even at the, the local physician level. I mean, if they can get vaccine compliance in their practices, then they're given big bonuses directly directly by the pharmaceutical industry or by their HMOs. And so, you know, it, it really does a lot of times just boil down to money. We, we, you know, the vaccine is shown not to be effective at preventing transmission, at preventing disease, really at preventing hospitalization or death. But there is just a strong financial incentivization down to the, you know, point of care medicine level that, um, you know, the pharmaceutical manufacturers make sure that these people are paid very richly to to get those vaccination rates up. So it's um you know the old follow the money thing, but that predisposes that that those who are benefiting can somehow suspend their 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 conscience and sort of tolerate a percentage of maybe their patients if it's a private practice uh, um, a percentage of them kind of being very badly damaged and and carrying on it's quite quite hard to work out how an individual could do that, even if it's just for the money, right? 
Precisely. And I think there's a suspension of disbelief. I think there's a lot of people that are on that side that would say, oh, well, it's not really that bad, you, you know, and, and there's this normalization of myocarditis and pericarditis in society. In fact, there was an ad for one of the major hospitals in, in New York City that, you know, talked about myocarditis in children, and there was so much backlash over it. Uh, that they they actually pulled the ad. It was a it was a commercial television ad, um, and it was just sort of this normalization of myocarditis. That oh well, it is recoverable and it is treatable. Uh, but the dirty little secret is that the mortality rate of five years after a myocarditis diagnosis is about fifty percent. So you know about half of these people die after they get this diagnosis. Um, so, but I do think that, you know, a lot of medical providers just kind of quell themselves by saying, well, it's not that big of an issue. Vaccine injury is one in a million and all these other platitudes that we hear, you know, on vaccine information sheets where reality is just something completely different. In your work and experience then, what happens to someone in these situations? They take a vaccine or multiple and and I think you mentioned that in your son's case, he had an ear infection. So obviously it's not yes. ideal with any sort of anything wrong at the time to go ahead with one of these things. What actually happens? Do we know? Well, for for vaccine injury, what we know, the commonalities are inflammation. And, you know, the inflammation is an important part of the immune system response, but it's very nonspecific. You know, when, when uh, you know, you get inflammation of the circulatory system and the lymph system, you also get inflammation of the brain, of other internal organs, of the heart, uh, you know, of the kidneys. Inf the, you know, a lot of tissues will inflame. And I know that uh, in the case of, uh, autism, neuroinflammation or, or brain swelling and, and brain inflammatory responses are profound and sustained. And so some, some of the kids, um, you know, that get vaccinated have detoxification mechanisms that they can detoxify their systems of vaccine components. And so the inflammation will last a mere, you know, hours. Uh, for my son, it really simmers and simmered and simmers for the rest of his life. And, you know, we work to calm down inflammation, uh, using anti-inflammatory drugs and supplements. Um, but, but if you, if I were to look and find one common thread to vaccine injury, it's an inflammatory process. And then it's followed by some type of autoimmune reaction. I want to ask you about your book, Vax Unvax, yes. Let, Let the Science Speak. And I think you've been working with Robert F. Kennedy Jr., the Children's Health Defense. We've heard uh, quite a bit about that. It's quite widely reported through, well, alternative, but becoming yes. mainstream media. So we're kind of aware of that. And also uh, perhaps uh, more with Robert Kennedy, given his uh, public profile, he's really kind of got this debate out there right around the world. So... And it says here in description of the book to share authentic peer-reviewed scientific studies that show the direct health outcome comparisons of vaccinated versus unvaccinated individuals. How good is the data comparing the two? Well, it really depends on the vaccine and the instance, uh, you know, that the vaccine is given. There were some we we poured through the open scientific literature for about four years. 
uh, compiling all this information and found about 100 or so studies where there was a truly unvaccinated group. Okay, so truly, you know, no vaccines or if it was a COVID shot, no COVID vaccine. And um, and what we found uh, was that around the vaccination schedule, which is the second chapter of the book, that uh, most of the children who were, uh, I'm sorry, but, the, you know, the ch- there were unvaccinated children, you know, the ones that the government says don't exist. They had much less ear infections. They had much less respiratory infections and pneumonia. Uh, their rate of developmental delays was about half. Their rate of asthma was 4.5 times lower. Um, and, you know, chronic both chronic ailments and infectious diseases were lower in the unvaccinated by a statistically significant margin. And so we saw that there were other vaccines like the DTaP vaccine, diphtheria, tetanus, and acellular pertussis, where there were really holes in the literature. So we didn't talk that much about that vaccine in the book just because we could not find the information. It's still, you know, unfortunately, this science should have been done by the federal authorities many, many years ago. They've refused to do it. So it's been up to independent researchers. So, you know, as you would expect, you find holes in the research where, you know, it's akin to participating in some type of grand medical experiment rather than, you know, taking robust point of care medicine. That has been a criticism, hasn't it? The lack of control groups in a lot of this research. And is that a purposeful lack? I do believe so. I think that there's a concerted effort to get rid of the control group. And, you know, in the United States, the rate of chronic illness among adults, excluding obesity, is 27%. So 27% of the individuals in the United States have at least one chronic disorder. Um, You know, on top of that, about 54, when you include obesity, the the number jumps to about 54% of all children. Um, chronic diseases are also very, very expensive. When you look at every dollar spent for healthcare in the United States, 84 cents of that dollar goes towards chronic conditions. And so, you know, there, there's impetus in, in, in chronic medicine cells. You know, you've got people who are hooked on drugs and are taking these drugs for a lifetime for chronic ailments. They're, you know, it's not well care, it's sick care. And so I think there's a real concerted effort to remove this sort of control group of individuals who don't take a lot of pharmaceuticals, who don't get vaccinated. And so there's resistance, there's lots of resistance to do these studies. I'm thinking as you're uh, describing that, that, okay, if you're following the money, there's the sales of the vaccines themselves, right? But then downstream, if you're talking about that level of chronic conditions that are treated with pharmaceuticals, that really is just the, that's like buying the printer. It's You make the money on the printed cartridges, don't you, in the end? Uh, and you can sell a lifetime in sick care, as you put it, of a whole cocktail of drugs for decades and decades to what was the percentage of the population? Well, around half potentially or tw- between 27. I, I, I can't remember the exact. Right, thing, right. 27 and 54 percent. Correct. Those are big numbers. Those are tens and tens of millions of people, right? That is correct. And, you know, if you look at at pharma- the pharmaceutical imp- enterprise, specifically in the United States, that's a one trillion dollar venture. 
It's a lot of money chasing these ailments. And, you know, vaccines themselves, a vaccine gets voted onto the childhood schedule. That's a $1 billion enterprise for that vaccine manufacturer per year, you know, just for that one, one vaccine on the schedule. And so it's been like that for a long time. And there is no liability for pharmaceutical manufacturers around vaccines in the United States that all changed in the 1990s. And so you would, as you would expect, more and more vaccines get added to the schedule schedule and more and more, you know, pharmaceutical companies are partaking of that $1 billion a year sales enterprise. And so there are more entries into the market and now they're actually crowding what's known as prenatal vaccines. And, you know, in the United States, they, the FDA just approved the RSV vaccine for pregnant women. And so now there are five different vaccine or five vaccines that are given to pregnant women who are staying on schedule in the United States. Whereas before the year 2000, it was unheard of to vaccinate a pregnant woman. And a percentage of those will go on to have chronic conditions, which and you can sell to them again. Over exactly. Over. Exactly. Uh, Cradle to grave. On that. What has to to give here to to because it's obvious what's going on. I mean, right, isn't it? To anyone who's who's got half a brain, it's it's obvious what's going on, and it seems to be causing a lot of damage and the um and and being indemnified. I mean, that's that's crazy. I mean, that's a dream situation for a product maker. Right, something has to give at some point, surely. Something has to give, and I believe it started. You know, with with the COVID-19 draconian measures, lockdowns, all of a sudden we're we're to believe that the magic number is six feet distance between us and other individuals, that viruses, you know, they will not, they'll traverse six feet, but no further. Um, And then, you know, double, triple masking, you know, two different types of masks, and then vaccination after vaccination. I think that the, the federal authorities and the pharmaceutical complex have overplayed their hand. And, you know, they see more and more of a gravy train. And and I know that the uptake rates for boosters in the United States is is an all-time low. The last booster that was approved by the FDA had something like a 17% uptake rate. And so people are really voting with their feet. Not only are they no longer afraid of COVID-19, but they're also, you know, more and more concerned about what they're putting in their bodies in order to combat, you know, a virus that, you know, is continually mutating. Um, But for uh, many people that, if not most, they already have natural immunity. And so people are thinking with their brains, they're voting with their feet. And um, those that are questioning the COVID-19 vaccine are now also looking at, you know, well, what are the differences between this and the vaccines that were sold to society prior to this? And they're seeing, seeing relatively little difference in the sales strategy, relatively little difference in the real thin veneer of science, you know, around faulty vaccine clinical trials. And so many, many people are now asking many more questions. And, you know, my hope and and Mr. Kennedy's hope is that people will read this book and it will inspire conversations between them and their doctors. Has there been any comment in the media about the book? I had a quick look. I really couldn't find anything too mainstream in the cursory glance, I admit, that I had. But that 
surely distribution of of something like that book and coverage in wider media is going to connect with more people. Um, are you seeing any of that? Is that starting to grow? And are you, uh, or is there any sort of noticeable uptick in whistleblowers from the industry who maybe some individuals who've come to the point where they've thought, well, I can't sit on this any longer. I'm going to have to say something. Has there been much of that? Well, first of all, there there has not been really any interest from the mainstream media whatsoever. The book was mentioned briefly in the New York Times in a very uncomely fashion in a hit piece on Robert F. Kennedy Jr. and his presidential campaign. And so that was about it. And and they didn't waste too much time on the book because they don't want to give the book any free publicity. Uh, you know, this is simply a book that the mainstream media does not want anybody to read. The alternative media, however, has really blown up with this. And, you know, to tell you the truth, I can barely keep uh, keep up with all the interviews that are going on from alternative news sources. And and so I'm, be, I'm very encouraged by that. There has been an uptick in whistleblowers. Even Children's Health Defense has. We have our own whistleblower line. And, you know, it's regularly... Um, showing more and more people, more and more industry insiders that have um, additional information about the faulty nature of the clinical trials, the faulty nature of the manufacturing of these vaccines. And so we're compiling more and more information. In terms of um, Robert uh, um, Kennedy Jr., he seems to be gaining popularity from what we can make at this side of the the world, certainly being talked about a lot and uh, um, he's appearing on on many platforms. Um, I'm not going to ask you to make a prediction on his, you know, political success or otherwise. But if he was in that role, let's say, would health be different? And if it's different in the United States, it'll be different everywhere else. Believe me, over time. Do you right. think he's the sort of person who can create a sea change in health? Well, I, I, I cannot endorse any candidates, uh, for, for any elections because of our, uh, not for profit status in the United States. Yeah. But I do know that, uh, Mr. Kennedy is committed to solving the chronic health disease crisis in the United States. He's really committed to do that. And he said that on multiple occasions. Not only does he want to get to the bottom of the causes of that, but he really wants to reform, you know, these this sort of incestuous relationship between the government authorities and the pharmaceutical industry and this sort of revolving door between, you know, the Department of Health and Human Services and Big Pharma and really take away the incentives for that and and you know i i strongly believe that that is what needs to be done that that needs to be fixed we cannot do direct uh, you know television marketing of pharmaceuticals in the united states any longer and that's something that mr kennedy is committed to change through executive order um and so there are a lot of a lot of aspects regarding healthcare, regarding the pharmaceutical industry, regarding, you know, the whole chronic disease epidemic that that Bobby's really been talking about. And really, you know, I think he would be in line to to address that in a very, very proactive fashion and and hopefully would have, you know, the legislative and judicial branches in order to back him up. I mean, that's always a struggle with the separation of powers in the United States. But, you know, but still, this is, you know, something that we're very, very 
uh, I'm very excited to, you know, to see what he is talking about. Just a last question, because it's been a really interesting chat. And thank you again. All for right. Well, thank you very much to, to talk with us. But as a parent, I, I got to ask you, this is a parent. I'm not in your situation, but as a parent who's had this happen, does it anger you? Does it make you want to personalize, you know, an aspect of this? Like, who's responsible for this? How dare they do this? Is it, I guess it's a while ago, so maybe those feelings dissipate over time. I don't know. But is, what's it like for you in that situation? Well, it's it never is um, – it's never easy to see – your child in chronic pain and what that's one of the hallmarks of this disorder that is really never talked about head pain because of neuroinflammation gut pain you know crohn's disease like symptoms uh you know i food sensitivities things like that watching him go through that angers me to no end and you know this could have been prevented it could have been prevented even with testing, even if they had not changed the vaccine schedule on IOTA, but if they would have tested and screened for individuals who were going to be more susceptible for vaccine injury, the technology existed the day he was born to be able to do that. And that really infuriates me. Um, and, you know, that fuels the drive not only to give him his best and brightest future every day, but also to prevent this from happening to anybody else. Dr. Brian Hooker, Chief Scientific Officer, Children's Health Defense. Thank you for coming on our radio station. We appreciate well, it. It was very interesting to talk to uh, with you. Thank you very much, Paul. It was a pleasure. RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio.